0: Listening to another episode of Grace Matters Conversations Establishing Believers in the Truth. The rest of 2020 was pretty difficult, especially for those of us on staff at a church. We apologize for not putting out any other episodes of the Grace Matters podcast to finish out the year, especially since December did have a fifth Wednesday. December planning, though, is particularly difficult for a creative arts pastor like me. Since I was busy working out things for our Christmas uh, liturgical structure, I didn't have a chance to edit a podcast. Thankfully, Neil Manning was able to have a great conversation. What follows is the slightly edited version of his conversation with Father James Gurgis, who leads a congregation of the Eastern Orthodox right here in Fuqua Verena. We hope this conversation encourages you to consider the long and rich history of the church. As we get to know this part of church history that we might not be too familiar with.
1: Welcome to this month's Grace Matters, where we're exploring the question, who are the Orthodox and what is Eastern Orthodoxy? Uh, There are a lot of questions that surround the church over the centuries, um, between the different traditions and possible splits. And is there room for unity for the churches in the future, or even a sense of unity, perhaps now? Joining me will be uh, Father James Gerges from St. Raphael's Orthodox Church in Fuquay, Verena. But before we interview him, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I pray that our conversation would be honoring to you and edifying for all that are here. May we learn from you and that you would um, just enliven your uh, saints to honor you uh, among the church and as a witness to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Father James, first I want to say thank you for um, making time to join us for this conversation and for actually opening up the, the church that we can uh, sit together and uh, converse about the people and history and the theology of Eastern Orthodoxy. So thank you so much for, thank for doing you. this. Thank you. It's our pleasure to uh,
2: be able to do so.
1: Uh, so um, before we jump into the church as a whole or the Eastern tradition, why don't, we tell, why don't we hear from you about who you are, how you got into ministry, and, and where you're from?
2: Well, uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, my parents are uh, born were born and raised in Egypt in the Coptic Orthodox Church, so I think that that has a lot to do with uh my my own personal history so i grew up in the coptic orthodox church Uh, i was born and raised in chicago illinois Uh, i moved with my family uh, when i finished my senior year of high school uh, and uh, attended nc state university studied political science and uh, met my lovely wife there and at some point while I was in school, really had a uh, conviction that my life needed to be directed towards Christ in a way that it hadn't been. And um, so that led me on a journey. And, uh, and in the course of that journey, one of the things that, that my wife and I did together... Um, was we would visit lots and lots of churches. And um, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Roman Catholic, non-denominational, you name it. And uh, what I noticed visiting all these churches was that each one did things differently. And um, for, for me personally, that didn't sit well. For some people, that doesn't uh, seem to. Uh, be strange or, or bother them but my, I kept asking this question I said if there's one Lord Jesus Christ and one group of apostles how is it that we got to the place where everybody is worshiping in completely different ways mm-hmm. and if you begin to ask certain questions then you have to chase them down for answers And uh, I joke with people and say that that was when I first uh, really uh, utilized the library at NC State. And and I went there, and it's a huge library, something like nine stories. And I I go into the library and I start studying. And uh, what I was looking for was uh, was the early church. I was looking for the church that connected directly to the Book of Acts, connected directly to the Apostles, and ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this is how uh, I came to the conviction and belief that uh, in the Orthodox Church, uh, that's what we have. Now, to go a little further uh, on, we can say that uh, at some point, the Lord uh, gave the calling to ministry and something I wasn't expecting at all, uh, something I had not thought of, And it's a surprise to me. It was a surprise in my life that uh, I I heard the calling from Christ. And at that point, you are free to make the decision that you want to make. But if Christ invites you to something and calls you to something, I think we we would be left with regret if we didn't accept that call humbly Mm -hmm. and just move forward with it and uh, understand that that might be God's will for our life.
1: And did this occur while you were um,
2: studying the church in Christ at school or afterward? Um, it, it was a similar time. Um, probably after studying the church itself, but um, while I was still in school and still you know had no real idea what I was going to be doing with, with my life and uh, uh, what i was going to do with my political science degree when i got out of school and so that makes two of us yeah the the, the lord had a, a way of of ordering things and bringing things along right
1: that's terrific well you did mention a wife and and family yes um the kids yeah
2: we have four children uh from anywhere from ages of 15 to five okay so we got we got a little uh we have a, a wonderful group there. Isabel is 15, and uh, Lydia is 13. Um, Juliana is 11. Andrew is 5. <laughs> so, he's a cute guy, too. I've
1: seen him. Um, so you, with the mention of family, then, uh, when Protestants... Typically, whatever we little know what little we know about Eastern Orthodox Church, we associate or compare with Roman Catholicism. So to, to be a clergy, to minister in the church, um, it is okay to, to marry.
2: Yes, as long as you are married before you take your vows as a, a priest or as a deacon or as a bishop well bishops don't get married in the church so we should just clarify that Mm. we don't have any married bishops in the church the bishops are the sole members of the clergy who are celibate and live uh, in 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 a a virginal state chastity virginity um and the reason is that in, in ancient times, the bishops would have to travel over large distances, and uh, they are in charge uh, o- over great dioceses. And because of that, they need to be able to um, not focus so much on a family, mm-hmm. they, because they're traveling from place to place all the time, they would be, that would be in neglecting the family. Also because the bishops were often chosen from monastic communities, and in the monastic communities those men have already taken vows of of poverty and celibacy and virginity.
1: So it's as much a practical precaution uh, Mm -hmm. as
2: anything? It is, it is. And and again, you know, they were looking for uh, the best of the best and uh, men of uh, integrity, men of prayer men who are not given to um, desiring wealth and uh, things of that nature. And so they found what they were looking for in the in the uh, monasteries. They often chose candidates from the monasteries and had those, those men consecrated to the leadership of the church. But the rest of us, uh, priests and deacons, we are allowed to be married as long as you are married before you become a priest mm. or deacon. Okay, so if you happen to get ordained before, then you are that's the that's way the you path have to go. chosen mm-hmm. okay exactly
1: so for the clergy, is it also required to have a great and awesome beard?
2: uh it's not a requirement, <laughs> but you know it's it's one of the perks
1: <laughs> every, every priest I've seen and bishops included uh, just has a, a nice full beard that's a, that's a yeah I,
2: I, traditionally. It was understood that uh, the clergy do not uh, shave their their faces at all they leave their, their beards um, because it's also it's a sign of uh, not trying to be fashionable hmm. not uh, uh, spending time on vain things in front of the mirror focusing on your looks um, so it's it's dedication to, to God and also, you can see some of that in that Nazarite vow that's in the Old Testament, and St. Paul also took the Nazarite vow. You know, the cutting of the hair, and then after that, no longer allowing a blade to touch hmm. the, the, the hair or the face, just to uh, let everything grow. Uh, among, especially among the monastics or the, or the monks of the church, they don't cut their uh, hair after they are made uh, monks. Their hair just keeps growing just similar to the Nazarite vow. Hmm. You see? You know, how Samson had his yeah. long hair and, and the breaking of the vow is what, you know, undid Samson. Took away the strain.
1: Very good. Well, what can you tell us about the, the history of, of this local assembly, St. Raphael's
2: Church? Okay, so, uh, I moved to this area Uh, A few years ago, let me see, I believe it was 2014. And uh, I was uh, the assistant priest at All Saints Orthodox Church in Raleigh. Uh, We were there for a few months, and um, Father Nicholas, who is the senior pastor at All Saints, said to me, you know, I think we may want to consider starting another church, planting a church or a mission in the area. Uh, let's let's examine and study the issue, mm. and uh, we we did that. We uh, we put out a request and asked for families who were interested in being volunteers and, and helping us to begin this task of starting another church. And um, on January seventeenth of twenty sixteen. We had our first uh, service together, Sunday morning service together. Uh, We rented Crooked Creek Clubhouse, Mm -hmm. um, which is now like a public park in in Fuqua Verena. We rented that clubhouse for one year. Mm -hmm. And then we were able to purchase this building, which had uh, formerly been a church as well. And uh, since then have done, uh, you know, little uh, upgrades here and there. Um, but we've been here ever since in uh, 2017. Um, and by the grace of God, we just keep growing. Terrific.
1: And this is essentially a, a church plant mm-hmm. from a larger um, urban church mm-hmm. where you came from. Well if if your goal was not to be stylish and hip, uh-huh. I think between the beard and being a cool church planter, you, you're striking out here and it's <laughs> 0 for 2. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know if you remember the last time we met and spoke. Um, In in fact, uh, I believe the question I'm thinking of about the early stages of 2020 when COVID-19 was hitting, we didn't actually meet. I um, had emailed you about... um, what you planned on doing for the administration, the serving of the Eucharistic Mm -hmm. elements. Mm -hmm. How has uh, the coronavirus and and the varying degrees of of shutdown and restrictions affected uh, the church and the way you do things here?
2: That's a really great question. Um, In some ways, there isn't a good answer because... Every few weeks, things have changed. What I can tell you is that for the first eight or ten weeks, it was very uh, difficult. Uh, the governor had put uh, very strict mandates on the church. Some of those mm-hmm. mandates were, were lifted due to uh, a, a judge overturning the governor and, mm-hmm. and telling the governor he had overstepped his boundaries and his uh, constitutional authority. Uh, I thank God for that, that, that a judge intervened and, and, uh, and saw things uh, on behalf of the church and said, basically, you have to treat the church the same way that you're treating Walmart and Food Lion. There is no distinction to be made. Hmm. And actually, that's really true. Because the governor could say, well, food is essential. And we would say, this is essential. Being with Christ is essential. spiritual. And, and, and as we talk more about the church, um, you will see why it truly is essential. It's not enough to just be in your home worshiping. But uh, the first few weeks, we also had directives coming from our own bishops and our archbishop. Um, those limited our numbers to 10 people in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did a lot of streaming services. Uh And, you know, it was something we all had to do together and work through together. Um, at some point, again, it was eight or ten weeks later, we began to lift some of those restrictions, uh, allow a few more people to enter into the church. Uh, now we're at something like 33% capacity, uh, which is about 65 people on a Sunday morning. And. Um, It has not changed the way that we deal with Holy Communion and distribution of Holy Communion at all. Um, And the the Archbishop was very clear to us and the bishops have been clear. We will not under any circumstance change the way that we do Holy Communion. Meaning, there is one spoon and from that one spoon everybody receives Mm. Communion. The reason is that We have a firm belief in our church that when we receive communion, we're not receiving simply a symbol, but we receive the body and blood of Christ, which are changed in a spiritual manner by the Holy Spirit. And because it's the body and blood of Christ, we believe that there's no disease, no sickness, no germs that are passed from person to person. And I would say, you know, since we've been open for at least four months and we've not had any outbreaks and we've had 65 people every week receiving communion, um, that for me is an indicator that, uh, thank God he's with us, he's present, uh, and the teaching of the church regarding Holy Communion is Mm. sound. Mm -hmm. And that's something we take on, on, on faith, of course. Right
1: when uh, before we look at the the larger history the worldwide history of the church um, i, I kind of want to address your title your role and and also your your vestments so the the role that you
2: have here is what my role is a pastor um, and specifically as a priest I, i'm a, a priest and pastor of the church
1: now uh what i've read also that the the how the term priest is used uh, has its own history within the English language do you mind
2: kind of exploring that a little bit we can uh, well you see in the New Testament uh, you will often find the English word elder but what's interesting is so when you go to m- most um, non-denominational Protestant churches they will have a, a council of elders um, I, I believe that in the early church, that was not so much the way that el- the elder was used, um, because the word elder is presbyteros, okay, which is presbyter, and it points to a priest. Um, the, the, the English uh, way of rendering presbyter uh, became uh, fluidly turned into priest, presbyter's priest. So uh, there's also another word, by the way, in Greek, which which can uh, denote or or uh, draw our attention to priests. But that's a technical thing. I don't want to get a, okay. get off yeah. into the weeds. <laughs> um, so so you have the elder who is also the presbyter in the early life of the church. You may have had communities that were um, guided by Episcopos or bishops, overseers. Sometimes in, mm-hmm. the, in the English language, we'll say overseers, which is exactly what roughly what episcopos would mean. Um, it seems that there is a little bit of interchangeability in the New Testament between the word uh, overseer and the word elder. Right. But as you get into the first second century, there begins to be a real demarcation, and the uh, overseer or episkopos or bishop is of a higher rank who uh, observes a group of churches, re- regional regional director. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's a good, uh, and then good you have the the one who is in charge of the local branch, which is your elder or presbyter or priest. Okay. Um, so. Hopefully that helps to clarify it a little bit for you. It,
1: it does, and, and I think uh, for those listening and watching, I, I also want to say that here in just kind of introductory questions, we've already gotten into ecclesiology or uh, an area of, of doctrine that uh, that churches need to, to wrestle with and figure out what um, God wanted through, through the Word and through um, the, the church, how He wanted His people to operate. And um, there may be questions and answers throughout this interview that... You, you might want me to, to speak up or, or maybe push back a little. Um, but I think what's best here in this conversation is to hear from you, uh, Father James, to um, get a, a better understanding from someone who uh, serves in the Orthodox Church ab- about the Orthodox Church. And then hopefully that will lay the ro- road for um, very friendly, respectable, or God-honoring uh, dialogue in, in the future. So... Um, Amen to to follow that up in your role um talk about because you're wearing black if if anyone is not watching they're only listening to us you are in your your black uh, Robes, robe yeah. with a, a cross around your neck uh, can you desc- uh, kind of explain the the meaning significance uh, what that role uh, what that helps
2: you uh, you know p- priests traditionally wear a black robe, which is called a cassock and um In North America, we also have some who have uh, become a little bit more modern in their practice, and so they wear black pants, black shirt, white collar, Mm. which by the way was very traditional among many of the Protestants as well for a very, very long time, and of course the Roman Catholics. Um, This is more our traditional uh, garb. Uh, I believe it's helpful in witnessing to the world. Uh, uh, I I believe it would be helpful if all clergy... Mm from all over the churches would dress in a unique manner, because I think the world needs to see that as a witness. And we need to know that these people are around and we can go to them. So what happens to me often is people will come and say, father, will you pray for my uncle who's sick? Father will, this just happened to me recently in Walmart, (laughs) um, the strangers, uh, complete strangers, or sometimes just people who get to know me because they see me in the same stores over and over. Or, um, whatever the case may be. Uh, another thing which will happen to me as an Orthodox priest is that when people see me in a black robe, they sometimes they will know that I'm an Orthodox priest. And if they just move to the area or what have you, they... Uh, They'll be surprised and they'll be pleased and they come and talk to me because they might be orthodox Mm -hmm. they may have come from another country and not really known that there were orthodox priests here Mm -hmm. which is hard to believe but that's the way that um, that it is sometimes Uh, so we wear black because it's a sign of our death to the world Mm. what what are we called to as christians as children of god it's to die to the desires of the world uh, to live a holy life, which means to come out from the world, to be separate from the world, um, to die to our own desires and live to Christ. And so the, the black really denotes that. And also, um, I guess, in in the historical context, there was a time where um, a certain class of, of citizens in like the Roman empire and in the Byzantine empire would wear the black Hmm. and the black robes. And it was like, um, but I don't remember exactly the details. It was, uh, the scholars of some kind or, or there there were certain class of people that would wear black and that began to also be attributed to Hmm. the clergy.
1: So are you ever without it? Are there things that you do, uh,
2: in, in other clothing? Uh, when I go to Home Depot, <laughs> I, I just, I do not like getting my robes dirty. <laughs> so, or, you know, when I'm out doing yard work or exercising, no, there's definitely no robes involved, um, but, but the rest of the time, generally. yeah, most of the time. That's true. Yeah. Um,
1: can you tell us the history of. I'll ask you about uh, here in um, the establishment of, of Saint Raphael's. Why don't we move a little more to the the worldwide or mm. the longer history of the Church, uh, the the Universal Church, but as, but specifically the Eastern Orthodox Church. And um, I think as we go, I'll have some questions. Well, let me go ahead and ask you to us to lay the the groundwork here. Um, you, you've mentioned this is an Antiochian uh, diocese, and uh, which is part of a the, the Greek Orthodox, is that correct? No, it's Antiochian Orthodox. Okay, separate from the Greek, separate from Coptic, mm-hmm. uh, separate, separate, separate from, from Russians. Mm-hmm. So uh, how might we refer to these different... Diocese, are they traditions? Are they churches? Are they how do, how would we refer to the different? Are they based on languages, regions? They,
2: they are uh, they are different jurisdictions. Jurisdictions. Yes, but they are all the Orthodox Church. Uh, now, technically, um, the Coptic Church is considered the Oriental Orthodox, not Eastern Orthodox. But um, among the others that you've mentioned, you have uh, the Serbian Orthodox. Romanian Orthodox, Bulgarian Orthodox, uh, Finnish, Finland Mm -hmm. Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, um, uh, Antiochian. Um, You have the uh, the Greek Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox are in uh, a few different places, including Alexandria, Egypt. Um, So they are separate jurisdictions. Each of them answers to a different group of bishops, but all of them are actually in communion with one another. And all of the bishops are in communion with one another. So, um, Meaning what?
1: what? What does it mean to, to be in communion with one another?
2: Meaning we consider ourselves all to be one church. Although we, have, uh, we don't have administrative... Uh, mm each group is 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 managed and governed independently administratively so because in the life of the early church and in the canons the canon law which are which are the, the guiding uh, rules mm-hmm. of the early church you can only have one diocese one bishop in one diocese you don't have overlapping bishops in one diocese but the united states is a bit of a mess <laughs> yes because it was a land of immigration, and each group with their own language and their own ethnicity and their own cultures, each group brought their own bishops. You don't have a single jurisdiction represented. You have too many, and you have overlapping, uh, mm. overlapping dioceses, hmm. which is an anomaly that's not really present in the rest of the world.
1: Interesting.
2: So, if you go to a place like Jerusalem, Jerusalem has one Orthodox church. Hmm. Um, Russia is the same way, okay. Uh, Greece is the same way, but in the United States, we have a bit of a of a mixing melting pot and um, and and it creates a little bit of confusion if that makes any sense yeah, it does. I, I can
1: see where that would um you're essentially one church, but with different administrations yeah.
2: that, that overlap. But I can also give you an example, you know a practical example. One of the other um, rules of the early church that's written down is a, it's a canon law is that a priest can't go and serve in any other church without permission from his bishop and permission from the bishop to the diocese to which he's going to serve. Mm-hmm. okay? So it always keeps order in the house of God. Mm-hmm. There's no confusion. You can't come and say, oh, I'm such and such a person. Right. That doesn't matter. What matters <laughs> is that you come with a letter from your bishop and approval from the other bishop who, whose diocese you are entering. So coming and going, you have that. Permission. But if let's assume we have those things. Then as an Orthodox priest, I could go and serve in any Orthodox church all around the world. Hmm. Even though I might not understand the language or, <laughs> or you know what's happening, but the point is we can do that because we are united in one faith mm-hmm. as a church. We have one faith, one dogma, one belief about the nature of Christ, the nature of the church. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and here, what
2: language uh, are the services? We do everything exclusively in English, uh, and. It depends on where you go, because um, in in some parts, even in the United States, you have heavy ethnic uh, right. uh, enclaves, and um, so sometimes you'll you'll go to a church that might be half Greek <laughs> or half Russian, or you may go somewhere where it's even more than half. So it's not always a, a given that the Orthodox church you're going to visit will be an all English-speaking community. For us, this is part of our ministry to the world and evangelism to the world is that we are English speaking. We are uh, much more converts than people who were born and raised in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for that reason, we want to be an American Orthodox Church and, and invite you know, our neighbors to come and to grow deeper in their faith in Christ.
1: I, I want to return to um, the, the Orthodox Church and its presence in America. But I wonder, leading up to that point, if you can just paint us a quick picture of. I'm asking you to do the impossible, uh, but a a quick overview of church history with regards to the Eastern Church.
2: So, uh, the claim of the Orthodox Church is that we are the one unbroken church which our Lord Jesus Christ. Passed down to us through the apostles. Uh, and you see, for instance, in the Gospels that our Lord says to Peter. He doesn't say to Peter. He says it to all the apostles based on Peter's statement of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Mm-hmm. The Lord says on that statement of faith. Uh, uh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Uh, you you are the... Uh, you." Are the rock, and upon this rock, which is the statement of faith, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Meaning, he's given authority to the apostles with the establishment of the church. And we have a teaching that comes from the um, second century from a a bishop of uh, Lyon, France, his name is St. Irenaeus. St. Irenaeus talks about a term, he says, he calls it apostolic succession. Apostolic succession is the idea that uh, anybody who is a leader in the life of the church, a bishop will have been, had his laying on of hands directly from one of the apostles or directly from one of their successors. Hmm. And so any Orthodox Church you go to until now, you can find that their bishops have records of the laying on of hands all the way back through the centuries to the disciples of Jesus Christ.
1: So that applies to bishops, um, not necessarily then to
2: the, the local priests? No, the priests have to have the laying on of hands from the bishops. But what's important is that the bishops have an unbroken line of succession all the way back to the apostles. And what that shows is that they have unity and fellowship with the apostles. Um, In Acts 2.42, actually I think it's one of the most important verses in all of the New Testament, Acts 2.42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers, right? I think that's a really good encapsulation of of how I understand what it is that we're doing in the church. We're trying to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and Mm in prayers, okay? So, we, we follow that trajectory of having um, communion with the apostles, the laying on of hands, unbroken succession, hmm. all the way through the centuries. You get to the point in the 3rd um, and 4th century that you have five main centers and hubs of Christianity. Uh, you have... Uh, and this is after the, um, I would say, after... The emperor, Constantine, made Christianity a protected religion. Uh, and as you may or may not know, the emperor, Constantine, himself became Christian. And his mother, Helena, became Christian. So, so we're so, talking early 4th century, yes, era, right? he, 313 and, and onward. That's right. And he protected the, the, the church. Uh, and it began to go from being underground to becoming... Uh, A church that was much more public began to build cathedrals and churches for public worship. And you then have five main centers of Christianity uh, around the Roman Empire. Uh, You have uh, Alexandria, Mm -hmm. Jerusalem, Constantinople, Antioch, and Rome. Mm -hmm. And this is generally the way that things go. And I'm going to gloss over a couple of things just for for uh, time's sake and convenience. Um, you you have a, a a small schism in the fifth uh, century, uh, which le- leads to the difference between the Oriental Orthodox and the mm-hmm. Eastern Orthodox. That's at the Council of Chalcedon, which is the fourth ecumenical council. Then. Things are generally clear until around 1054 when we have the Great Schism. All of the history books call it the Great Schism. This is when we as Orthodox would claim that the Roman Catholic Church broke off from the rest of the uh, Mm. Christian world and became their own entity as a church around 1054. They of course would say we broke away from them, <laughs> and uh, and so.
1: If memory serves, was there mutual anathemas um, in both directions? Of yes, but that's not how it wrong?
2: began. Uh, you know, it began with some some issues. It was a long journey to that point. It was a long journey to that point. Uh, part of the journey was. There were um, creedal changes that were brought in by the Roman Catholic Church in response to certain heresies that had had cropped up in in certain places. But this was unacceptable to the Orthodox because all of our creeds had been agreed upon in great councils of the Church. Universal. Universal councils, what we call ecumenical councils. Mm. uh, Gatherings where all, as many bishops as possible, would come to one place and reason together, pray together, ask the Holy Spirit to guide them and to um, further clarify things that maybe Scripture had not um, clearly defined. Or put another way,
1: there are plenty of places
2: where Scripture can be misinterpreted. Mm. And so um, you have this issue... They had uh, the, the addition of what's called the filioque. Filioque is a phrase added to the creed, which says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the yes. Son. Um, and and most of the churches, uh, the the Western churches, follow that formula. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, in the early life of the Church, and what continues in the creed of the Orthodox Church is that the Holy, Proce- the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, not from the Son. Without that second clause? Procession is yeah. from the Father through the Son. Mm. Okay. So, the fact that there was a, a, a change to one of the dogmatic teachings of the church was very serious. Mm. On top of that, we have Rome trying to assert authority, primacy. The Pope of Rome is trying to assert primacy over all Christians all over the world. Mm. And uh, so what they would say is that they are the first and the, the prime bishop of the church. And everybody else is under them as the head of the church. And what the Orthodox would say is, you are the first among equals And there's a big difference. The first among equals means that if you have a gathering of all of the bishops of the church, uh, then the Pope of Rome would be the the leader of the gathering. He would preside Mm. over the gathering of the bishops. But he intrinsically has no more authority than any of the other bishops. Mm. So at, at a strictly academic level, theoretically, each bishop is a sovereign over their own territory, over their own diocese, over their priests, although each one answers to each other one. Mm. You get what I'm saying? So that leads us to the uh, uh, 11th century, the split between the churches. You now have the four main uh, sees of the Orthodox Church on one side, and you have Rome on the other. And we would argue that generally, our the life of our church just developed uh, in 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 with very little changes from that point forward, and that as you see, Rome Rome began to deviate and to create more additions and changes, which and abuses, mm. which led to our problem in the sixteenth century, which Martin Luther tried to face head-on against the Roman Catholic Church, um, dealing with what he saw as corruption, uh, uh, unbiblical teachings, um, uh, abuses of power, which leads us then to the Reformation on that side.
1: Do you know of any uh, communication between the Reformers
2: and the Eastern Church? There are. um, One of the most famous is... um, and I don't know the pronunciation exactly, but there are the Tübingen scholars, uh, Lutheran scholars. Um, they they are, the, are the Protestants who really come right after Martin Luther, and they're of the same school of thought. And they uh, began a series of dialogues with the patriarch, Jeremias II of Constantinople. In which they, they started those dialogues in a very respectful and, and kind way. And really what they were hoping to do was to um, garner support on their side uh, against the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. But also, it seems that they started out with some really um, good intentions, and that was to dialogue and to see where it was that that they were perhaps not quite um, Orthodox Christian in their approach. So that's how they approached it. They came, and they wrote to the patriarch, Jeremiah, and they said, "Uh, Holy Father, we would like you to examine our faith and tell us where our faith is lacking. Hmm. And through a series of cordial exchanges, that dialogue began. But as it went on, it, it, it seemed clear that they actually weren't ready to give up some of those um, issues that, that Patriarch Jeremias would have said are those are deal breakers of mm. our faith. And um, that, though, that certain things that they believed were not quite orthodox. And so for that reason, at some point, they, they agreed to disagree. And they, uh, they just let um, they let, it let communication slip and, and, and they, they ended it respectfully. But they ended it respectfully disagreeing.
1: I, I think that's a great bit of history that um, many people are, are unaware of and that uh, there has been a communication between East and West, uh, specifically with the Protestants, and um, perhaps that uh, gives us uh, of groundwork uh, for, for further communication.
0: Sorry for the abrupt ending, but this is only part one of Neil's conversation with Father James. We'll continue in the next episode now that we've caught up to the Eastern Orthodox Church in America. If you have any questions for Father James or for Neil or any of our staff at Grace, we would love to field those questions in a future podcast. Send those questions to Gracematters at GraceCCNC.org. Until then, we hope you've been encouraged by this great survey of Christian history, and particularly the history of the Eastern Orthodox Church. You've been listening to Grace Matters, conversations establishing believers in the truth.